What's going on, guys? And welcome back to this week's episode of the Let's Just Talk podcast. I am in person with a human being this week, not over Zoom. So it's good to have someone in front of me. Uh, Scott, welcome to the show. How are you, mate? I'm good, mate. Thanks for having me in today. Very happy. Um, I've actually always wanted to interview someone in your field of work. I've just never had someone that I know personally who uh, is doing it. And so it's a good timely that uh, you're around just before you leave um, to leave the country, which we'll, I'm sure we'll get on topic of um, as I've lived the kind of uh, stay-at-home dad life for a while. And now you're, I think you're about to transition into it. But um, for the time being, you're a paramedic. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I am. That's what my uh, qualification says. That's what it says on the piece of paper. Yeah. Says, yeah. <laughs> if you um, look at the APRA website, you'll find my name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I saw you post the other day that it was 26 years in the profession. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I um, came into it as a fairly fresh-faced 22-year-old back in 1997. So if you can do maths, you'll probably work out how old I am now. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had some friends or people that I knew who had been doing that for a few years and they highly recommended it i quite enjoyed human bio at high school gave it a crack and next thing i blink and 26 <laughs> years have gone <laughs> gone past you got your gold watch uh for retiring mate uh, i've got a little pin i think <laughs> <somewhere>. yeah <laughs> and I, I mean i as i said I've, I've had a couple of clients over the years who have been paramedics and i've dealt with uh i guess the many traumas that come to their bodies because of that i mean Nurses, paramedics are kind of quite similar in that I tend to see a hell of a lot of back issues, neck issues with carrying patients. And I mean, I can presume you can probably tell me plenty of stories oh. of like, here's the correct technique to lift yeah. someone. But when you're in a, an emergency situation, that just probably all goes out the door. So for yourself, can I just ask, like, have there been those kind of issues with the bodies over the years with regard for your body in particular over the years with, um, you know, being a paramedic? How has it taken a toll on it? We were... Uh, Thankfully, my trainers, when we started, were very, very much uh, lifting is the last resort. So if there's any other way you can get a patient off of wherever they are and get them onto your stretcher, you utilise those efforts. Bystanders are always good for that. Yeah. Um, I did have a shoulder injury that kept me off the road for quite some time, and it's just part and parcel. The amount of people, unfortunately, who, ha who I've seen in my career have back injuries, shoulder injuries. Shoulders and backs seem to be mm. the main um injuries most of us suffer from the odd knees and ankles but yeah lifting and all of that training does as much as you're trying to remember how to as and as everyone is taught to you know squat down lift with your legs not with your back etc etc when you're trying to get someone who you're doing cpr on off of the floor and onto your stretcher you coordinate stuff as carefully as you can but sometimes you kind of take a little bit of a uh, risky <laughs> maneuver we'll call it yeah <laughs> Just, just to expedite stuff because you can't, you can't always take as much time as you need to. Mm. The profession itself, I'm trying to, I guess, link myself into it with regards to, you know, I've done CPR courses every year for the last 16, 17 years of my own kind of career as it is. And that the educator doing the CPR is always there's like, who has ever had to, you know, it's always the first question, has anyone in this room ever had to actually perform CPR? And I don't think I've ever seen a hand go up yeah. in that in that kind of room. And the, I guess the reason they try and ask that question is that, you know, I'm trying to put myself in a situation where, okay, cool, we've just learnt CPR, okay, push, 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 yeah. breathe, numbers kind of thing. I would like to think I'm a pretty cool calm collected type person in most situations but if it was a family member <coughs> excuse me if it was a family member especially 
but even someone random that has just dropped in front of me or they're choking or whatever it might be, I don't know that that probably would be the case if it actually came to it. You go through, is it four years worth of uni? Yeah. Yeah, paramedics, yeah. You come out day one and they say you're going to this station, cool, you turn up day one and you're in the, I don't, again, you, you can tell how kind of day one kind of works, but I'm just kind of spitballing here. It's like yep. get in the truck, you've got your senior next to you and you're like, okay, off we go and like go. Yep. day one you're turning up to a car wreck and, and here's someone like, you know, lying dead on the street. Like is, is it just kind of like a shock of adrenaline to the system on day one? It's like, holy shit. Like, yeah, and yeah. that shock of adrenaline uh, happens the first time the alarm goes off in the station and it doesn't matter what job you're going to on your first day. It could be someone with a chest infection that's having difficulty breathing, which isn't isn't a hard job to deal with, but as a brand-new student on your very first call, as soon as that alarm goes off, your heart rate goes to about 180. You, your hands are sweating so much you can't even get gloves on um, and then you kind of read the job and you hopefully you're working with a really good mentor and they calm you down enough to... <laughs> To be able to say hello <laughs> and your name when you get there. Um, uh, interestingly, though, the what you would consider a, a, a more difficult job, um, traffic accidents and, and CPR, because we do so much training on that, you've almost gone to autopilot, and they're very they're very definitive things to deal with. Um, whereas someone who's rung up with weird complaints takes a lot more investigative questioning to try and work out what's actually going on. Um, CPR, it's, yeah, you, it's a dime a dozen kind of, and I, I'm not saying that flippantly um, and without respect to people that we've attended, um, but it is the bread and butter of what we do. So it's a very, very easy job for want of a better word. Um, we, we all have our roles that we play when we get to a scene like that. And everybody just does what they need to do. And it's mostly if you were unfortunate enough to witness that, hopefully it would be a very calm scene from our perspective with very minimal talking. It would be one person running the scene mm. and they, they're telling everyone, right, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. And everyone just goes about their business. And the mentor that you got put with on day one, is that someone then that you are with for the first year or like however long kind of, go, or is it someone new every time you turn up? Like, How does that kind of first six to 12 months worth of you getting into the job kind of look like? So hopefully you're with that person for eight weeks at a time. So our rosters run for eight weeks and then we change over. Um, with If staffing levels are fantastic and everything is going well and everyone's healthy, then you'll be with that person for eight weeks and then you'll go to another mentor. For, and you have a you have three mentors um, and they fill in logbooks for you um, and give you feedback, etc. cetera. Um, so hopefully that first year you'll have worked for six months of that time with with mentors and hopefully the, the same three mentors, not a person every week. Mm. And uh, you say hopefully the staffing levels are okay. I mean, I don't think you hear, you can't go without hearing a news story at the moment that, you know, nursing, paramedics, the hospital system, you know, is completely overrun. Has that always, been, like, can you think back to 1997 when you said you kind of first jumped in? Has it always been an issue and, and is it always going to be an issue or has it gotten worse over the years that just less people coming into the profession or pays aren't there that people leave and they go into different jobs? Like, how has it kind of been as a profession with regards to staffing levels? Look, I think back to the beginning of my career, I've, probably seen fairly well staff we weren't certainly weren't as busy 
as we are now. We had less crews on the road, but also the population was a lot lower. 20-something years ago, I'm not sure what, what you expand by in WA year on year, but certainly our population growth has outrun the health system in its entirety, mm. um, both our capability of responding and the hospitals for accepting patients, but ramping's a, a 15-year podcast you could do to try and sort <laughs> that out. Um, so certainly staffing levels at the moment, we struggle, um, and that was amplified during COVID. Um, I think most businesses were running at about a 10 to 20% loss of personnel, and that we were the same as any other industry. Um, at one point, we were getting firefighters to come and drive ambulances for us so Jeez. we could respond to jobs as a solo paramedic, which was interesting. Mm. Um, normally, we work in a team of two, so you might get one ambulance officer, one paramedic, you might get two paramedics if you're lucky. Um, it's, yeah, so staffing levels have je- definitely not kept up with the work requirements, um, but that's, it's not just the health, it's not just paramedicine, it's not just the health industry, I, I think that's an issue um, I- every business is grappling with at the moment. Um, is it going to stay the same? I don't know, is it going to get worse? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, now that you've left, I mean, two-pronged question that kind of comes yep. to mind is like, now that you've left it, obviously, and we, we can talk, as I said, we'll talk a bit more about the fact that um, you guys are leaving for the States. Uh, your wife picked up a new job over there and you guys yep. are heading over there. But now that you've left that job, is there a, like, e- even if you do kind of, every, everything doesn't kind of go the way you think it might in the States and you come back here in 12 months time, like, do you just roll straight back into paramedicine itself or you're like, I'm done with that no matter what and I'm moving into a different co- stage of my life and career and bro- job prospects there or do you see yourself getting back into it in some shape or form in some way? Uh, no, I definitely see myself getting back into it. I've, uh, my employers were kind enough to give me leave without pay. Um, so at the moment, I'm just having a career break to support my wife while she um, betters her, no, not betters, while she you know, works on her career. Um, so I'm happy to step back, look after the kids and let her go and be successful. Mm. Um, but I definitely, I still enjoy the job. Like even after 26 years, there's, there's politics involved in any business and I try and stay away from that. But the, the, actual, the actual role of uh, answering someone's call for help, being able to treat them and see an improvement and take them to hospital, I still get a lot of enjoyment out of that. Um, so yeah, I don't see myself stepping away completely. Um, it's just a just a career break at the moment. Um, maybe I'll do some casual shifts in the US and learn how to treat gunshot trauma. Who knows? <laughs> I, I saw you post that the <laughs> other day that maybe you get better at gunshot. I mean, to ask the kind of obvious question: Is there again? This is just my naivety because I just don't follow news cycles yep. anymore, and I I made a big thing of that when. Back in 2020, midway through the year, I was sick and tired of seeing Daniel Andrews' face every single day yeah. coming up. I'm like, I'm tired of this. I'm just turning it off. And I'm never going back to it kind of thing. And I, I've been far better for it. And I, I always – people are like, but how do you know what's going on? I'm like, if something's more important enough that I need to know about it, I'll hear about it from people around me. It's like, yeah, did you hear – like, yeah, Exactly yeah. kind of thing. So, again, this is probably coming from a very naive position that I'm sure – it's not as bad as the media love to 
picture it out. But is there a genuine concern of kind of going to the States yourself with regards to your own safety for the family and things like that? Or is that really not? I'll put it this way. People always ask me, big surfer now, uh, love going mm-hmm. to the surf. People ask me almost every time I talk about that from sharks. the eastern states, aren't you worried about sharks? sharks yeah. It's not even a blimp on my radar. It's like, yes, they're more prevalent here, but I still look at the sheer numbers. Like, there's, what is it, six fatalities a year throughout the entire, entire world. Yeah. I'm like, sharks aren't my biggest problem when I'm in the site. Breaking my neck, hitting the sand's probably a far bigger yeah. issue. So that's kind of where the question comes from, is that the media says gunshots every day, and it's an issue, but is it such an issue that it's on top of your head or your family's head uh, as you go over there? Uh, look, it's certainly something we've thought about, um, and the decision to move... Um, to the US wasn't made lightly. I think I think the media does report obviously the worst. Um, we've had friends that lived in the same city we're moving to um, and never had any any dramas. It's a pretty safe city. Most of the uh, gun crimes are in either bigger cities or out in rural areas. Um, and certainly the three recent things that happened in Texas were in outside, well away from where we're going to be it it's something we've keeping in the back of our mind we certainly don't discuss it openly with the kids because we don't want to upset them mm. um but they also see the news occasionally so they they're aware of guns um and pro- interestingly someone said the other day one of my wife's colleagues uh, said she has a real um not a problem with sleepovers, but she's really careful about who she lets her kids go and stay with because of the potential of having firearms in houses, mm. which is something we don't think about in Australia. It's like, hey, do your kids want to come over for a swim? Yeah, yeah, no problems, because you know that the house is pretty safe and we know each other. And and I guess even once we get to know people, they might be stand-up people, but there's still a weapon in the house and there's you do hear reports of accidental shootings where kids get access to unsecured weapons so yeah it was uh, that was something we hadn't even wasn't even crossed our radar was that so now that's another thing you kind of go oh yeah who's got who's keeping a you know nine millimeter (laughs) (laughs) bedside table yeah yeah so yeah look the whole gun thing is something we think about but it's it's also look you wouldn't get on a plane if you all you worry about was plane crashes, you wouldn't cross the road if you, you know, how many people get hit by cars. So it's about risk mitigation, I think. So yep. we're not, we're obviously not going to be going to dangerous areas. Yeah, hopefully for Gunnos is clean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I want to ask you more about the trip um, coming up, but to kind of go back to the career itself and you know treating people. Um, have one? Have you come across gunshot wounds in Australia? Yes, you have. Yep. Okay. Um, number two, then to to that. Are there any things that even 20 plus years into it now that when you see the call sheet of this is what we're going to, that's like put you on edge or kind of still make you a bit nervous about shit? You know, I don't know how this is going to go. Like, is there something that still to this day makes you a bit nervous about the job itself? Uh, yeah, look, anything to do with kids. Yep. Anything to do with kids. Um, I've unfortunately attended a few um, horrible jobs with, with small children. Um, and they're the sort of jobs that always stick in your mind um, throughout your career. And there's, yeah, you certainly, when you read on the job card that there's a, um, you know, a two-year-old choking or not responding, you know, or a, or a baby that's not responding, you kind of, 
always got that in the back of your mind. Um, they're the jobs that when they come up, you kind of take a deep breath, drive a bit faster, work a bit harder. Mm. And I, I can remember the first time um, Amelia, luckily so far Anna hasn't had anything, but um, what's that thing that normally turns up at about 2 o'clock in the morning with kids? Croup. Croup. Yep. I remember the first night that Amelia had, she's had it twice, and the first time, Again, this kind of goes back to what I was saying before with regards to, you know, I think I'm pretty cool karma collector, but when it happens, especially to my own kind of family, I think, shit, you know, how am I going to actually respond in that kind of situation? And I can remember that kind of, <gasps> you know, coming from struggling the child, yeah, yeah, struggling yeah, yeah. to breathe. I'm like, Amy, wake up. <laughs> She's dying in the, you know, kind of a moment kind of thing and getting in there and kind of like, I don't know what to do. What are we doing? You know, kind of thing. Yeah. But, you know, calming her down and then, okay, triple zero, away we go, kind of thing there. And, like, obviously, you, you've seen probably many more of not only croup but other things kind of going with kids. And for me, working in my um, world that I have, I was always told by my supervisors and that kind of going through school and the different things I've done with regards to mentors, they've always said, never take home the, the traumas that the job brings, but especially don't take on anything that the client brings to you so a client could come in they're going through a divorce or something at the moment they're just pouring this oh my husband's this and this and da 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 don't take that home with you because it's going to just build up and you can't take that kind of energy um with you that's easy to do when it's just my clients talking about their husband who they're, they're looking at divorcing kind of thing you said it kind of sits with you and you like have have those things kind of built up over time to be a bit of a, a burden on you mentally kind of thing that's still to this day like oh, i remember that one back in 2014 like do they sit with you and and then the question to follow up is like how do you kind of move on like is, you know, I don't, yeah oh man that's a good question <laughs> um yeah easier said than done not taking stuff home i'm i always try and be uh, as sympathetic as i can to my patients i i try and temper my empathy um because being empathetic you take on too much of their emotions um, and that's that's difficult to shed. So it's just something you're kind of cognizant of all the time. Um, I think early on in my career, you think you're bulletproof and nothing's going to affect you and you can soldier on. And, and probably for the first 10 or 15 years, you, you don't realise that you're actually taking a lot on board. Um, and, yeah, look, there are, there are particular jobs that I can, I can still see clearly absolutely clear remember every single detail about jobs um there's a couple of good ones in there um but most of them aren't mm. um we're quite lucky that our the colleagues that i work with um we are like a big family uh, so talking to each other is our first point of call as far as dealing with those sort of jobs and for our mental health um we do have a lot of access to uh, outside professional help um, that we're supported with. Um, uh, and for me personally, exercise uh, gives me a, a good chance to clear my head of stuff. So yeah, I like to jump on my bike and just tune out to the world. Yeah. Yeah. It, to kind of flip that switch then, is there been, like, a, as you said, you, you highlighted there's been a couple of, you know, good ones. Has there been, not to kind of completely flip it and say, are there ones when they come up with a call sheet, oh, 
can't wait to get to this, you know, like not, <laughs> not, not to kind of go like that, but are there ones that you're kind of like, this will be challenging, but I, I know I can make a big difference here and we, we, we're going to save this person or they're going to have a great outcome from it. it. Have there been some of those kind of times or when they do come up on and you read the kind of files, like, okay, we can definitely make a really big impact quickly here kind of thing? Um, sometimes it's a bit difficult because we don't get a huge amount of information sure. on our job sheet. So uh, it, it'll we might get a job for, for a vehicle accident. It'll... It might be car versus truck or car versus car, multiple patients. And that's kind of all the information you get. And it's not until you get to the scene and then you, you work out what's happened, how many patients you've got. And it's not until you actually get to focus on your one patient, once you've organised resources, et cetera, that you can kind of go, oh, this is this is a good job. And there's a, there's a very um, – there was a famous shirt um, that a company in America, an EMT company, and it says – it's not that I want to. S- it's not that I want you to get hurt, but I want to be there when you do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's a very, it's it's kind of the dark humour that we uh, thrive on, and and not just paramedics, um, nurses, and doctors, and fireys, and police will tell you the same thing. Mm. Um, I, we're trained to do specific things, um, and we can quite often go long periods of time without using those skills. So when you get a chance to do those skills, you kind of you do rub your hands a little bit. <laughs> it's like it's like a surgeon being told they, you know they can't do any operations for X amount of time, and then suddenly they get a you know a great case comes in. I bet they get as excited as we do mm. for doing stuff. So yeah, you can't actually pick the jobs when they come up, um, yep. but it's not until you get there and you go, oh, this is this is quite good. And how did COVID change it all then for you? And, and not to kind of glaze over the fact that. WA had it in quote easier than other places because it was just obviously they didn't have the kind of case numbers and that, that obviously don't have the population that some of the other big cities, especially Australia and around the world, kind of have. But for Perth in particular, like how did that change that? Because again, I had a couple of I got one good mate back in Melbourne who was a paramedic, and you know I remember when it kind of first kicked off back there before we kind of really knew what was going on, and you know they had all the protocol around protective gear, and if you've yeah. done this, you got to clean down the truck and it's not allowed to go back onto the streets for like how how did that change the game for you and did it mean you enjoyed the job less because of oh, another bloody COVID? you know like that yeah. like did it kind of just oh, it's got, not this again kind of thing yeah uh yeah look it, it did it it certainly slowed everything down um because responding to just about every job we had to put on full ppe um so that takes time to do it a scene and we had to do it even if we were doing going to a res- well even more importantly if we're going to recess um so there was that delay when we got to jobs and people are looking at you to run in and do something and you're like hang on i need to put everything on which which takes a few minutes to do um and then yeah every patient you went to the vans needed to be cleaned out which we did and then had to be aired out so yeah so it's, it slowed everything down and it certainly did suck a fair bit of the enjoyment out of it um particularly after covid had had actually hit perth um it was interesting when when the borders f- first got closed people immediately thought for whatever reason i think because the the first cases we had uh, there was a gentleman that got flown down from the northern territory off a off a ship and then that first cruise ship came in um and people were being taken to hospital with covid and it seemed like the general population thought that 
well, that's where you were going to catch it is in in hospital. So our initially our call rate dropped off and we were quite quiet for about a month or two, and then people just started. Then COVID actually got into the community, so we were starting to get calls. And I think, look, for me personally, the frustrating part it wasn't so much putting on the PPE for every job. Um, whilst whilst that was quite mentally draining and physically draining. Um, it was also people weren't, or my opinion of it, was people weren't reading everything they needed to read and unfortunately there was probably an overload of information from various sources. Um, but people would ring for an ambulance for the most minor symptom of COVID or they had done a rat test, tested positive, were actually fine but would ring an ambulance to go to hospital because they had COVID. It's like, no, you're actually okay. You can <laughs> you can stay at home and take Panadol and drink fluids and et cetera. So, yeah, I, th- I found that the most frustrating part was um, poor education. And I don't think it was poor education from the health department. I thought they threw a lot of information. Maybe it was a bit of an overload um, and, yeah, and people just not taking that on board or getting confused or whatever. So we spend a lot of our time nullifying taking people to, <laughs> to yeah, hospital sure. um, which chewed up a bit of time because you still had to gear, you still had to PPE up for those patients um, if they did get into the ambulance you know it's still the whole cleaning process so yeah, it, it slowed everything down um, to that kind of point I, I always you know you hear that saying that um, we'd ra- we'd much rather come out to a call where we don't need to take you anywhere and treat you than yep. you to sit there and go I don't know if I need, and then you die of a heart attack or something sure, like yeah, that, yeah. you know, kind yep. of wondering. Yep. What's the thing then that people, like, I always like, you know, with these podcasts, people coming in, coming away with some sort of little nugget of information that they kind of go with them. Is there something from your kind of professional point of view that you've seen over the years that you can kind of put yourself in a better position if you're feeling something, doing something, or something's kind of going, that you can manage the situation, either one until a paramedic gets there because you know you probably do need some help that you can manage that situation better or for two maybe without kind of giving medical advice here and <laughs> yeah. please if you need to call someone please call someone but like telling people that like if you're feeling these this is probably better than taking up a phone call that even though i know you should probably call them anyway like it's a bit of a loaded question yeah <laughs> it is and that's a really hard one to answer without getting in trouble from Registration <laughs> authority. <laughs> um, look, there's there's lots of alternative pathways available now to people. There's there's Health Direct where you can ring and talk to a nurse on the phone. Um, I mean, this the COVID hotline's still running, I believe. So if you've got any kind of fluy symptoms, you can ring them. I guess people, you know your own self, and if something isn't right, ring. And it's yeah. Look, I'd always advise people to ring as much as I don't want to flood the, <laughs> the EDs. There's, look, minor ailments, absolutely. Go and see your GP. Go to a urgent care centre. If you're bleeding out or you can't breathe, ring us <laughs> straight away. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I guess more for the minor stuff, you probably don't need an ambulance. You can go and see your GP. There, there, was, a, there was a kind of reason why I asked that question because – 
it was probably about two weeks ago. I can't remember the podcast I was listening to, but the podcast was saying that this person was talking about stories. Um, it was in the health scene in some way, shape or form, but this person was talking about that um, their father, uh, they were at a soccer game watching their younger child, um, which would have been the grandchild of this mm-hmm. person's father, um, watching play soccer or something, whatever it was. And this father started having some chest pains. Yep. Now, this woman, the daughter of the father, um, she knew, and this is in the UK, um, and they've got some major health issues, uh, things going on with their NHS at the moment, wait times on um, you know, ambulances and things like that. Yeah. So much to the point that she knew um, that kind of fact because she was in the health scene in some way, shape, or form. And she knew that they're probably 30 minutes away at the moment and he's in trouble that it's like th- he can't wait 30 minutes kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. So she called an Uber. Uber came in five minutes. Uber took him straight to the hospital. And even though they didn't have a paramedic on scene helping him in the back, he got there in nine minutes or something. Yeah. And he was saved at the hospital. I'm not asking you, should people call Uber? (laughs) But the reason I'm kind of saying is that, and it kind of goes back to what I asked you before, is that the system is becoming, you know, less paramedics on the road, more jobs, more population, and the system is becoming a bit more clogged and the hospitals can't. Do you see... Here's my nugget of information for you. (laughs) Ringing an ambulance doesn't get you seen faster. Mm-hmm. So that's that. That would be my takeaway bit of nugget of information for your listeners. Um, there, there is a little bit of a mistaken belief that if you ring an ambulance and arrive with us at hospital, you get seen straight away. It's not the case. If you get dropped off privately in an Uber and you've got chest pain, you'll get seen straight away. It doesn't matter how you get there. If you come with us, you'll get seen straight away. If you're ringing us for things that aren't urgent take you to hospital but you're going to wait in line everybody just like, every, just like everyone else everybody's triaged whether you walk through the door or whether you come by ambulance you get triaged exactly the same so yeah that takes up a lot of our time and and our ability to respond to actually urgent calls um, is the fact that we're we're ramped with low acuity patients who probably either could have gone to see their gp or could have been taken in privately there's um some people are we call them HBF positive. They've got a <laughs> they've got a health membership which <laughs> entitles them to ambulance use. So we're going to use it. I like it. I um, like it. Yeah. Uh, Do you have to stay with them as a handover in that triage, or is yeah. as soon as you drop them, it's like okay, here's the information. See you later. Or? No, no, not until not until there's a bed for them to go on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So they stay on our stretcher. We don't um, we don't ramp in the ambulances. There's a little bit of a mistaken belief that when people see 10 vehicles parked out the front of ED that everyone's got a patient in the back of them. Um, that's not the case. We're, but we are inside in corridors quite often um, and the patient will stay on our stretcher until we physically hand them over to staff. So we, we triage immediately when we get there. They go into the computer system. Um, but until there's a bed to put them on, you get the pleasure of my company... <laughs> Chatting away to you <laughs> for however long that may be. As you said, you could probably talk for an hour, 10 hours to kind of fix this problem. But as as simple as we can try and nugget it down, how does the health system as it is, as we have a ever-growing elderly population, you know, all boomers are now becoming 60-plus years of age. And, of course, 60-plus years of age, heart attacks and stroke, you know, all these kinds of things become more prevalent. Like, and less people paying taxes, so then there's not as much money going into the, Like, all of those kind of That's things. why the retirement age is going up to 70 by 2050, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, again, I ask you, 
how do we solve the problem, mm. Scott? But like, where do you kind of see the best way to kind of help the situation for not only the paramedics, but the hospitals, the nurses, the doctors and everyone in that kind of system itself? I don't know. <laughs> That's my simple <laughs> answer. Um, better minds than mine have looked at this from every angle. Um, health ministers have travelled overseas looking at how they're doing other parts of the world and, and nobody's got an easy answer for it. Um, I went to I went to a course and listened to one of our senior consultants um, and he said you could build a hospital as big as you want and it will get filled. So it doesn't it's it's not purely a size of a hospital. Um, that's part of it, but it's not it's not the answer to it. And I, I, I don't know what it is. It is it's a I think the problem is is it, it's a huge range of factors. It is the aging population with chronic illnesses, um, people are living longer because our medications are better, but they still have these illnesses that need treating. Um, the population's getting bigger as well as getting older. So th there's so many factors in it. It's not a – if it was a, a one or a two-point answer, mm. we would have solved it decades ago um, and worldwide there wouldn't be ramping issues. But it's, it's a worldwide health system – issue and yeah there is i i don't have any magic gems for that one the the question i want to ask before i'll come back to i have my thoughts on it kind of thing but the american system obviously gets a lot of flack because it's this privatized system it's so costly and so is it any better though for those who have insurance over there if you are fully insured over there and you, you got no problems is it any better by going the privatized route and where you know we have a governmental system uk has the canadians like is it because it's government regulated in some way shape or form does that make it any worse than being privatized in the states like do they have a better system over there or it, it doesn't really matter it seems to work the same whether it's privatized or not i'll get back to you in two years on that <laughs> one i've experienced it myself <laughs> um yeah oh look i don't know i could only surmise it's i don't know mm. um yeah i can only see what I've seen in the media about what they do over there. If you've got health insurance, you get treated. If you don't, well, good luck to you. Mm. Um, I guess from a humanity point of view, is that ideal? Yeah. yeah. That, that's Plus, a completely yeah. different question. But yeah, I just thought <laughs> yeah. for those who are insured over there, I didn't know if they had better outcomes. I, because yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, I don't know. I get, look, it's the same with private health insurance here in Australia. You can have private health insurance, um, which which is great for hip replacements and some cardiovascular issues and uh, maternity because you get your choice. You can you can choose who, you, who your doctor is going to be, but you kind of need to know who these people are mm. as well. Um, if you have an accident and you go to Royal Perth, that's where the state trauma is, you're going to get the best trauma surgeons on the day who have more experience than anybody else in any other hospital, whether you're going private or not. So there's pros and cons to it. Mm. Um, it's certainly – it's good if you – if you know your surgeon yeah. or you know your obstetrician, and then I would highly recommend um, private health insurance for that. Um, yeah, and I, but I'd, I, yeah, not sure about the American system. I'll, like I said, I'll get back to you in two <laughs> years once I've <laughs> had a look at it. <laughs>